passage this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I believe if Kaylee has to hear me preach another sermon from the book of Ephesians, uh, she's going to start protesting and just not coming to church. Uh, it's my favorite book in the Bible, and it just happened to be one of the passages that was in our, our Advent series And so Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we're going to continue to look at the heart of God and kind of conclude that series today here. And so let's start reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God be gracious to us this morning and cause his word to bear fruit in our lives. Amen. So, um, I can't tell you guys how excited I am that the Christmas tree was still up this morning. I just wasn't quite ready to move on from Christmas yet. Uh, I was actually watching a, a movie on Christmas morning, and you probably all watch it. And some of you that are maybe a little bit smarter, more well-read than I am, have actually read the book. But A Christmas Carol, right? Charles Dickens' novel. Um, and there's, you know, 72 versions of A Christmas Carol that play on loop, it seems like, on TV every year. And there was a new version that uh, came out last year, and I can't really commend it to you. It was kind of crude, but that shouldn't surprise a whole lot, right? Um, and so I was watching it, and I feel like they did some things incredibly well, and it kind of gave me the idea, um, really, I think, kind of sheds light on this passage a little bit. But you know the story. Right, a Christmas Carol is about a man named Ebenezer Scrooge, and Scrooge is a, a shrewd businessman, right, who's accrued some degree of wealth. And as you sort of watch the story unfold, one of the things you notice about Scrooge is that the way that he's accrued this wealth, the way that he's become a successful businessman, is by pinching pennies, right? Not really tending to the welfare of those around him. For Scrooge, all of life was about making money and saving money, regardless of what it costs anyone around him. And so, as Scrooge continues on in this path, regardless of how it affected anyone else, depending on the movie you watch, right, there's a, uh, a spirit or three spirits that come and visit Scrooge for different reasons. But um, first we see the ghost of Christmas past come and visit Scrooge. And the, the new rendition of this movie I was watching, it did a great job giving such a vivid display of Scrooge's past sins, the things that he had really failed at. And I I found it really interesting kind of watching this movie that I I think over half of the film was spent with just the ghost of Christmas past. 
I thought that that was interesting. And they say, you know, the ghost takes him, the spirit takes him to one instance after another, taking Scrooge deep into his past sin and failure. And I think that Scrooge, probably like many of us, would have said, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. Sure, there have been a few instances of sin in my life, a few isolated moments where I could have done better, where I've acted in selfishness or my anger. I've just, you know, I kind of took my hands off the wheel and lashed out in anger. But those are just isolated moments. But then as the ghost of Christmas passed... And then the ghost of Christmas present and future takes Scrooge through his life and show him one instance after another of how his sin has affected those around him. What they're doing is they're trying to show Scrooge the fullness of what he's actually done, right? The full picture of his sin and by extension, who he actually is as a man. And so I think that for us, that's what God does here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As Scrooge sort of goes through this instance with the ghost of Christmas past, right, there's this frustration. Why do you keep bringing me back here? Do we really have to focus on this? Can't we move on to the good news? Can't you just tell me what I need to do better? And the spirits continue to insist, no, you need to actually see the depth of your sin. You need to see the depth of your wrongdoing. And so for us, the same is true. We need to actually feel the depth of our sin. We need to come to grips with what the Bible says about who we really are. That we are not just good people who do some bad things, but that we are actually flawed, crooked all the way down. And so for us this morning, obviously we're going to arrive at a different remedy for our brokenness and our sinfulness than Charles Dickens did. But we need to feel the weight of our sin nonetheless. And so we're going to go through it in two parts this morning. First, we're going to look at our great need and how Paul shows us our brokenness. Verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to read it again. Paul tells us, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's talking to his audience here, this church in Ephesus, and he begins by telling them that they, along with the rest of mankind, are dead in their sin. So by the way, that word mankind, right, that includes us. It's a blanket statement that encompasses all of humanity, regardless of ethnicity, Skin color, socioeconomic status, political party, your Enneagram type, right? Whatever, whatever things we try and use to sort of divide ourselves up and put ourselves into categories. Paul says that we are all fundamentally dead in our sin. Not mostly dead, but really dead, right? Now, this death obviously doesn't refer to physical death. Paul's talking about a spiritual death. This is the death that Adam and Eve earned as a result of their disobedience in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Right? You remember they had one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, in the first case of sin and unbelief, decided they knew better than God how their lives should go. And so they took the fruit and they ate. And the result, just as God promised, was death. And although the physical death wasn't immediate, the spiritual death was Where there was once intimacy with God and enjoyment of God, now there was alienation and hostility. A great chasm caused by their sin. 
And this is what Paul calls spiritual death. Scripture teaches us that this spiritual death that Adam and Eve brought on themselves was actually passed down to all of their offspring like a disease. You learn that in Romans 5. And this death caused by sin that we inherited is also inescapable because, Paul says, we are still enslaved to sin. And it enslaves us from three different angles. If you look right here in verse 2, the first way that Paul tells us sin influences us and keeps us enslaved is by following the course of this world. So the first sinful influence we see that sort of seeks to keep us enslaved to sin is actually the world around us. Paul says there is sin in the world around us. Gasp, right? Shocking. The world is broken. It's not functioning as it's supposed to. And we know that the world has always been opposed to God's right rule over his creation. This is not a new thing, right? Sometimes we watch the news and we think that sin in the world is a a relatively new thing that happened. And maybe, yes, in some ways it's gotten worse, but it's actually not new. Paul tells us, That the world is sinful and that those who are spiritually dead are like fish in water who don't know that they're wet. They find the world alluring. They put their hope in the world to satisfy their deepest longings and fix their problems. They go with the current. But that's not the only thing that's affecting us. It's not just sin around us in the world. Paul goes on, verse 3, excuse me, into verse 2. The Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul's talking about Satan. See, those who are spiritually dead tend to think that they are their own masters. No one is in charge of them. I am the captain of my soul. But Paul tells us something different, that those who are spiritually dead are under the influence of Satan, our great enemy. He's always working, seeking to tempt and confuse. And I think above all, he's out to distract He uses everything from demonic activity and the occult to seemingly normal and very American things like materialism to keep people from seeing themselves as they really are. He doesn't want us to see ourselves as being spiritually dead. He wants to do whatever it takes for us to feel very much alive. Buy as much as you want. Do whatever you want. Be whoever you want to be. And if you just do you, then you're going to feel alive. There's always a carrot out there on the end of the stick, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to keep us from actually seeing our true condition. He's an enemy that's working relentlessly to keep us distracted, confused. And if Paul stopped there, if he just left sin at the world and at Satan, then we would be really tempted to think that we're just sort of innocent bystanders. We're damsels in distress, helpless victims. And while Scripture does speak of us as being victims of sin, the Bible also makes it abundantly clear in passages like this one that sin is not merely something outside of us, it is something inside of each of us. Verse 3, Paul says, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." The world does not make anyone sin. The devil does not make anyone sin. 
We may be tempted and misguided by those things, but the only reason we sin is because that is what we most deeply want to do. That's why Satan has any power. That's why the world has any power is because fundamentally we have hearts bent on sin that want those things. And this is what it means to be dead in sin. We each have hearts bent on self-rule just like our first parents, Adam and Eve. And this spiritual death and its God avoidance means that we are not looking for God. In fact, like Adam and Eve, our sin is nothing less than outright rebellion against him. And just as their rebellion affected their relationship with one another and with God, so our sin does the same. There isn't one corner of our lives that is not thoroughly tarnished by sin. Not one piece of our relationships or our lives that isn't touched by our rebellion. And this affects us individually and it also affects us as a society, as a world. And I want you to see here that the Bible is not... The Bible's not unclear about the state of our hearts, which means it's also not unclear or unrealistic about the state of the world. No other religion gives such a comprehensive and realistic explanation for the sin, the chaos, the violence, the selfishness that we see in the world. The Bible says people have rebelled against God, and when it fractured that relationship with God, it also fractures relationships with everything else on the horizontal plane. The Bible's incredibly realistic. And Paul tells us the, re- the result of this rebellion. It's not just that things are fractured on the horizontal plane, that it makes life difficult for us. He says that it makes us children of wrath by our very nature. That we, because of our rebellion, our cosmic treason, we have made ourselves enemies of God himself. And if we stopped there, we would have plenty of reason to despair. Right? Our, our sin has not only fractured the relationship between us and our Creator, but it has also fractured everything else about the human experience. But God, thankfully, doesn't stop there. That's what makes the next six verses so incredible, is that after such a painfully accurate assessment of, humans, of humanity's true condition, Paul gives us the two most hope-filled, refreshing words in all the Bible in verse 4. But God. Paul makes it clear that we are in no position to help ourselves. So help must come from the outside. That if restoration, if salvation is going to take place, then it can't be us who do it. It has to be God that does it. And so he does. This brings us to our second point, God's merciful heart. So what does God do for us? What does he step in and accomplish? In a word, he saves us. Verse 5 and verse 8 tell us that, that God saved us. And Paul takes us to the very heart of what that means to be saved from our spiritual death. And he does it in verses 5 through 6. He reveals three aspects about our salvation to us. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So first, God makes us alive together with Christ. Second, he raised us up with him. And third, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. These are strange terms to kind of think about our salvation in. But I don't want you to miss right here that in each of these, 
they happen with Christ or in Christ. In these six verses, or excuse me, in these ten verses, got those backwards, in these ten verses, six times that phrase in Christ or with Christ is used. Paul's describing here three life events that happened in Jesus, right? We know that Jesus, having died on the cross, was resurrected, right? He was made alive. And he also ascended to the right hand of the Father, right? He was raised up. And then he was also seated in the heavenly places. We know that Jesus presently is seated on the throne in heaven. These are three life events of Jesus, And it's what we confess in the Apostles' Creed when we say, On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Paul's describing things that happen to Jesus. But he's not just describing something that happens to Jesus. He's saying these are things that happen to us. By nature of our being in him. That's that phrase that keeps coming up. Paul's saying that these things that happened to Jesus, being made alive, being raised up, being seated in the heavenly places, these things happen to Jesus, but they also happen to us when we are in him. Now that phrase, I think, kind of broadens our view of salvation. We think about being in Christ. That language is all over the New Testament. A lot of times whenever we think about salvation, right, we sort of reduce it down to fire insurance, forgiveness. And we think that Jesus is sort of in heaven lobbing forgiveness down at us, lobbing salvation, justification, sanctification. Jesus is far off and is just sort of hurling down heavenly blessings at us. But that's not the picture that the Bible gives of salvation. Paul says that we have been moved from spiritual death to spiritual life by actually being united to Jesus, placed in him, tucked in him in a sense. Folks, there is no forgiveness apart from the person and work of Jesus. There is no spiritual life apart from being in him. So what does that mean to be in Christ? Paul tells us in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. First, we're saved by grace. This is how we become united to Jesus. When Paul says that we are saved by grace, he is reminding us again that we are unable to help ourselves. That God had to act, and he does because he is, in verse 4, rich in mercy and loves us with a great love. That's what Kevin talked about in our confession of sin this morning, that God abundantly pardons. That he has a heart that is overflowing with kindness and love towards his people. God saving us by grace means that he was under no obligation, yet he moved towards the very people who spat in his face, and not reluctantly, but with a love that is fiercely self-sacrificing and was willing to go the distance for us, he drew near So great is his love for us, we're told in verse 7, that it will actually take an endless eternity for us to truly plumb the depths of his love for us. That's what Paul says right there in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I wonder if we've ever thought about the heart of God as being so full of love and kindness Not just for people in sort of the abstract sense, but for you in Christ. His love is so great 
that you will spend an eternity in heaven and never reach the bottom of it. We are saved by grace. His saving us is all about His mercy. If it had anything to do with us deserving it, ever earning it, ever being enough, doing enough, then we would remain spiritually dead and without hope. But we are saved by grace, not by works. And then Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the way that we become united to Jesus. Now I wonder what comes to mind when you think of faith. Someone, you know, faith is kind of a buzzword around church that we use. We talk about having more faith, and unfortunately we've misunderstood what faith is. And so in some places it's taught that if you can just muster up enough faith, then God will give you what you want and life will go the way you want it to. Maybe, uh, I know I've used this before, maybe we think of uh, where the red fern grows, right? A little old school Disney theology here, right? That God meets us halfway. That faith is our contribution to salvation. But it's not. When the Bible talks about saving faith, what it's talking about is simply coming with open hands. To take God at his word and receive what he offers us. So lest we think that we have anything to do with our salvation... Or we think that because we have faith and some people in the world don't, we have it a little bit more put together than they do. Paul tells us in verse 8 that even that saving faith, our ability to come to Jesus with open hands, is a work of God's grace, not our own works. It's God who gives us that ability. We have no grounds to boast as Christians. Jonathan Edwards said it well when he said that, we have nothing to contribute to our own salvation except the sin that made it necessary in the first place. We have no grounds to boast. And so when, by God's grace, we look away from ourselves and trust in God to save us according to his mercy, we are placed in Christ. When we approach him with open hands, we are saved, and that salvation again is being placed inside of him, united to him. This is what theologians call union with Christ. And that means that whatever belongs to Jesus, he now gives to us. Uh, when Kaylee and I started dating, which again didn't last very long, but uh, was, we were only dating for like four months before I proposed. I, I knew what I had and I wanted to make sure that she said yes before she changed her mind. Um, so whenever, uh, whenever we started dating... I had uh, one semester left in college, right? So I came here that summer and worked for you guys as, a, as an intern that summer. And so I had one semester left in college to go back and, and finish up school. And so I moved back down to Mobile for just that August through December range. And I was really trying to take a heavy class load and get done a semester early. And uh, I had, like, no money, okay? And so my, my meals at night were... <laughs> This, man, like this is gross just thinking about this. But it was, you know, if you ever gone like Target or Walmart, you see the protein noodles. I was kind of a meathead. So I was like, hey, this is a cheap way to get protein. So I'm getting my protein noodles and pasta sauce, right? So you just boil the noodles and mix some pasta sauce in. And Kaylee became convinced that, like, I was going to start sweating pasta sauce at some point. So I remember her sending me a box full of goods and snacks and coffee and basically things just to keep me alive for those last couple of weeks. And there was this amazing thing that happened when we got married. All right, sign a couple of documents at the bank, and all of a sudden, in being married to her and being united to her, what belonged to her belonged to me, right? All of a sudden, I had insurance. All of a sudden, I had money. 
Not a lot, but I had money. All right, I, like we we could afford to eat, um, and that that's the great thing about this marital union is that what's hers is mine, and what's mine is hers. Folks, in the same way, when we become united to Jesus by faith, what is His becomes ours. And here, Paul says that what happened to Jesus, his being raised from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father, reigning from a throne right now, that those things actually become ours too. Because we are united to him. Now, this creates a bit of a dilemma for us, I think, because we hear that and we say, all right, well, Paul says that in Christ, right, if I'm united to him by faith, that my salvation means I have been raised from the dead. It means that I have ascended and I'm in God's presence somehow. And then also I'm reigning. How in the world does that work? What Paul is saying here is that there is sort of an already not yet nature to our salvation. Right? Uh, in a sense, we have been raised from the dead. Right? We were spiritually dead in sin. We were people who were unaware of God's presence, actively rebelling against him. And now God's spirit has actually given us a sensitivity to the reality of God. He's near. We perceive him. We know him. And we have also ascended in a sense. We are no longer distant from God. We have been brought near to God. And in a sense, we reign even now. What, what in the world does that mean? I don't feel like I'm reigning very much. I don't feel like I'm in very much control of anything, for that matter. What in the world does it mean that we're reigning? It means that the sin that once enslaved us has actually been placed under the feet of Jesus and is thus under our feet. Does sin continue to live in us? At time? Yeah, absolutely. Right. We, we have residual sin, right? We have remaining sin. But folks, if we are in Christ, we do not have reigning sin. Sin does not continue to have mastery over us. And in that sense, we are reigning. These things are ours in Christ now. And they are also going to be ours in Christ, right? We know that, yes, we have been raised spiritually. We know that one day we're going to be raised physically. Now we have been brought near to God. One day, as we uh, sang about this morning going to be near to him in a way that we cannot fathom right now we will be in his presence forever now we reign but we continue to battle sin then sin will be removed from us there's an already not yet nature to our salvation and paul goes on to flesh this out for us in verse 10 when he says that we've been resurrected that our salvation is nothing but being raised with christ he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I don't want you to miss this. And we're going to close here. God has saved us apart from our own works. Right? You and I have been saved by grace through faith. That's why Paul at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1 can say, and such were some of you. Right? We, we were people who were spiritually dead. But then God reached out to us by his grace, gave us faith to come to Christ with open hands, and he makes us alive to God, united to Jesus. We receive all that belongs to Christ. But I don't want you to hear any of that and think that the Bible is ambivalent towards what we do. 
We may be saved apart from our works, but we are saved for good works. Works that Jesus prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, I want you to catch how radical this is that we who were dead in sin have now been made alive to God in such a way that we are actually free to obey. Free to produce spiritual fruit. And the only way that we're able to do this, by the way, I think a lot of the reason why we feel stuck in our sanctification at times, the reason why we feel like we're actually not making much ground in the Christian life, is because we sort of get the order of this salvation mixed up a little bit. We, we start reading that we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, and we say, all right, got it. So I'm going to walk in these good works. I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to try and improve. And this was, this was Scrooge theology, right? This was, this was Charles Dickens' solution to Scrooge's problem, was you see what you are, you see what your sin is and how fallen you truly are. Now go do better. Go make it right. And we think, okay, well, that's what I need to do. And, you know, and I'm, I'm going to try as hard as I can to walk in obedience. And when I fail, that's where grace swoops in to pick me up. That's where mercy meets me is when I fail. Friends, we need to see that mercy and grace come far before our good works do. That we were saved apart from works. That there is nothing we can do now to make God love us more. Nothing we can do to make God love us less. There's nothing we can do to dissolve that union between us and Christ. We are in Him. And if we will see that we are working from grace rather than for it, that we are working from God's love instead of for it, something amazing happens. Right? We, we actually get to enjoy obedience. Our hearts can be light. We no longer feel the burden of performance. God invites us in and says, No, 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 I love you, so now go do the work. Not, do the work so I love you. So, two questions that I just want to leave you with. Number one, have you ever come to Jesus like this? Have you ever gotten to a place of seeing the true nature of your sinfulness? That you are not just a good person who occasionally does bad things, but you're someone who is dead in sin. That you need help to come from the outside. If you've never seen that before, if you're not sure that you've ever actually placed your faith in Jesus, then I would just encourage you, like, get in touch with us this week. Swing by, talk to Kevin, grab somebody out of the, out of the congregation, talk to them today, and let's kind of get sorting this out. Let's find out if we've actually placed our faith in Jesus, if we've come to understand grace in that way. And then secondly, the question I would ask is, if you have, what motivates your obedience on a daily or even moment-by-moment -moment basis? Right, we, we all have sort of a felt expectation of what our lives should be, how they should go, and what we should be doing. And oftentimes, those are not bad things to have, right? We know that there are areas that we need to improve in our lives and ways that we need to be more faithful with what God's given us. But what motivates that obedience for you? Right, we said for Scrooge, it was, you just need to do better. And if you do better then great, you know, you can restore these relationships and everything will be fine. And it makes for a really good movie, makes for a good story. But for those of us who've tried that for very long, we know that that road leads to despair. Friends, God's gospel gives us no reason to despair because it has removed our ability to boast. 
We've been saved by grace through faith. And now what should be powering our obedience is knowing the loving kindness of God for us in Christ. If we will see the heart of God for us like that, if we'll fix our eyes on the cross as the greatest demonstration of God's heart for us, then guys, we can actually obey not out of obligation but out of enjoyment. That's how our hearts become light, and that's how mercy motivates. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you've come to reveal the heart of God to us, not just in word, but in deed. Lord, you've come to put on display the self-sacrificing love of the Father that would not leave us dead in our sin, but that moved towards us to save us. Lord, would you deepen our view of our salvation to see that we are united to you, that we are a part of your body, Lord, that there is no dissolving the union between us and yourself. Lord, help us to rest secure in that. Help us to walk with that awareness. And Father, teach us how to walk in good works, not out of obligation, but out of enjoyment because of your grace. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.